Welcome to episode 195 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Isabel L. Dehir, a senior analyst in, the- in thematic intelligence at Global Data, which recently released a critical minerals report. We're going to talk about uh, which minerals are important to the energy transition, some of the issues that come along with that, in particular, geopolitical competition and and uh, economic competition for those uh, for those minerals. So welcome to the interview, Isabel. Thank you, Markham. Pleasure to be here. Well, look, why don't we start with uh, an overview of the report, if you don't mind, please? Sure. Um, so the report focuses on critical minerals for the energy transition. So a critical mineral is a mineral that is essential for the development of um, energy transition technologies, such as electric vehicle batteries, uh, solar, wind, and nuclear power, um, and minerals that are also at a high risk of supply disruption. So we're talking about minerals like lithium, cobalt, copper, uh, nickel, and rare earth elements, among others. And at the moment, projections show that within a few years, production of these minerals will not be sufficient to match demand. And with the phase out of fossil fuels and the phase out of combustion cars, the bottom line is that the supply of these minerals needs to increase. And that's why they're termed critical. And there are several risks facing critical minerals, for example, um, mineral depletion, resource monopolization, geopolitical tensions, just to name a few. And our report at Global Data goes through these various supply side risks. Let's start in your report, you talk about 15 critical minerals, and five uh, of the most critical are lithium, cobalt, copper, nickel, and then rare earth elements. Why are these five more critical than the other 10? Well, um, so these five are expected to face um, severe shortages by 2030, some of these. So for example, um, cobalt projections show that by 2030, supply might only be able to meet 50% of demand. Uh, for lithium, it's about two thirds. Um, additionally, a lot of these, um, these five minerals, they are monopolized by particular regions of the world. Uh, for example, China dominates rare earth uh, element production and also processing. Uh, lithium is produced by uh, Chile, Australia, and China. And then again, its, it's processing is overwhelmingly dominated by China. Um, and because of this, uh, or these monopolizations of these, or the monopolization of these minerals, um, is causing a lot of insecurity within supply chains. Because if a, if a country that dominates the, either the production or the processing decides to um, limit exports or in a trade dispute is sanctioned, the entire supply chain all the way downstream is affected. What about the opportunity to innovate in the technology that creates or uh, extracts some of these minerals? And I have a specific example in mind. In Canada, uh, based in Calgary, there's a company called Summit Nanotech. And we've interviewed the CEO, uh, Amanda, uh, oh, Amanda Hall, uh, a few times. And they just, they, they have a technology that strips lithium out of briny water. And the there's a big demand for this in Chile, which is a, a, a very large lithium uh, producer. So right now they're mining it in the traditional way, but they, she's her company has just completed a very large deal with one of the Chilean miners there. And they had piloted this technology over the last couple of years. And I guess it proved out. And it looks like they're going to be deploying it at scale uh, over the next uh, next few years. And it changes the game. 
because now you no longer have to mine it and then uh, I don't know what the, the word is where you put it in these pools and evaporate at the pools and you know it takes 18 months now you what took 18 months now can be done in a day and so the the costs are lower and you can take uh you don't have to worry about shortages in the in the, in the minerals and I I just wonder uh this could be a game changer for lithium and there are others but are there similar kinds of game changing technologies available that might improve the supply of these other minerals? That's a very good question. I mean, innovations of that kind are exactly what's required. And I've heard of it before for lithium. I'm not aware of any at the same at the same state sta, um, status for the other minerals. Um, however, I would say that innovations in the technology space, for example, the development of sodium ion batteries instead of lithium ion batteries are another way of offsetting um, the demand for singular or dependency on singular minerals. Um, you know, sodium ion batteries are being developed by the likes of BYD and, and Cattle, you know, big major uh, Chinese battery makers. Um, and while sodium ion batteries might not be comparable to lithium ion in terms of the range that it, that it can have for an electric vehicle, not every consumer needs a long range electric vehicle. And so having alternative uh, battery chemistries or technologies uh, could help to mitigate the impact of, of shortages um, and just overall um, supply bottlenecks. Yeah, that's a very interesting example that you brought up because I understand that sodium ion has about two-thirds of the energy density of lithium ion batteries, but there are other innovations that can be made in in, in parts of the, uh, the EV, like battery management uh, software, power electronics, that can can boost the practical energy density that's available to the car, the practical amount of energy that's available so that the performance between sodium ion and lithium ion is not as dramatic as it otherwise might've been. And that I think is an example of where clever engineers uh, are, are innovating and designing and engineering the re-engineering their, uh, their technologies uh, so that they don't need as many of these these critical minerals. I mean, we you know not everybody's going to be doing uh, nickel manganese copper uh, or cobalt uh, batteries. Uh, that'll be maybe higher end kind of you know EVs, more expensive EVs that need long range. And then as you mentioned, you know these other uh, lower uh, range EVs. But that in a kind of innovation is taking place across the supply chain. And and I wonder how how significant will it be? Do you think? I think it will be quite significant. I think in times of when when change is required, we tend to find the means to achieve it. We're seeing a similar situation with rare earth elements. Uh, rare earths are required in electric vehicle motors, um, and like I said, China has a has a particular dominance in this in this uh, area, uh, or so in terms of rare earth element production and processing. And we're seeing a lot of uh, EV electric vehicle manufacturers uh, move away from the requirement for rare earths. They're making motors without them because they don't want to have that singular dependency. Uh, back in 2010, China actually um, temporarily restricted exports to Japan of rare earths. And although it was a very short-lived ban, Japan reacted and they ended up uh, diversifying where they got their rare earths from. And um, automakers within Japan started looking at alternative technologies to rare earths in, in electric vehicle motors. So um, we, have seen it, we have seen precedent for this. And it's likely that technology will continue to transform um, in, in, in answer to these, to these um, 
supply chain issues. And I and another thing that impresses me about this innovation is how quickly it takes place. It's not like <clears throat> an issue comes up like you know sodium ion batteries, and it takes years and years and years or decades to do. It's like you know the shortages emerge, <clears throat> and within a year, within months, uh, an innovation has taken place that addresses that mineral mineral shortage. And I think that's that's kind of new in terms of energy transitions and technology changes that the the uh, the engineers, scientists, and so on can respond that quickly. No, that's true. I mean, I, I guess we're seeing um, various stimuli. We're seeing uh, policy and legislation. We're seeing consumer pressure. We're seeing obviously advancements in technology after decades of research, and it's all coming together at the right time for the energy transition uh, to be achieved. Yeah, that's something that that very often gets overlooked is, you know, we talk about these, you know, the main technologies like wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles and heat pumps and so on. And we forget about all of the other uh, uh, <clears throat> coincident uh, enabling technologies, you know, like artificial intelligence and advanced material science and electrochemistry and all of these things seem to have come uh, come together at just this point in history to reinforce each other so you know to enable the ener this energy transition to proceed at a faster pace than maybe previous energy transitions and and critical minerals then plays a key a key role in that and uh, i don't know what's your take on that no, that's a very good point i mean digitalization and the use of um, software is becoming a big part of of um, the mining industry to find um, bottlenecks within the mining procedures trying to make sure that their process is as efficient and as waste-free as possible um, in order to produce as much and as and as well as possible. Um, so I think it's true that it's not just about the hardware. A lot of it is in the software, um, which is kind of instructing us how to be better, how to produce our technology better, how to get our, our materials and minerals in a more efficient way. Um, and it's providing a lot of answers at a faster pace than perhaps we could have achieved without it. Let's talk about geographic and political monopoly, and uh, uh, and we'll start with the political monopoly. I, I think everybody agrees that China has a huge lead uh, in so much of this, and it's not just the access to the uh, to the critical minerals; it's the processing of the critical minerals. And so, I interview I've interviewed a couple of experts on this, and one from uh, Bloomberg NEF in particular. I can't remember his name offhand, but. You know, I, we were talking about about Canada and Alberta in particular, and and okay, so it has critical minerals. It it could then uh, process those into battery metals, uh, which then might go off to battery plants that are popping up all over North North America. It's, it's crazy how many uh, you know that are in planning or under construction. And and I said to this individual, uh, I said, uh, well, so how long does Canada have? You know, like a decade. Maybe I mean, sure, surely it's got seven years, like till the end of 2023. And he said, no, he said it's like two to five years because there are so many other countries. And specifically, you can think of like Indonesia that's using its its uh, huge nickel resources as a means to lever uh, battery production to, you know, the construction of battery plants into Indonesia. He said there's so many of these little countries. Sorry, emerging countries, emerging sort of middle income countries uh, that that see this as a tremendous opportunity 
to leap forward in their economic development in the industrialization of their economy and they're moving really quickly they've been they've been prepared for longer than north america has he said you get two to five years uh, what would you your take be on that that's very true so china's monopoly over the mineral market has had a very strong influence on today's geopolitics um on, on a larger scale it's, it's played a very strong part in escalating the u.s china trade war um, as you mentioned, China has for a long time been investing in critical mineral resources, both domestically and internationally. Um, you know, it was back in 1992, for example, that China predicted the importance of rare earths. And even to this day, China has almost 100% control over the rare earth processing market. It also controls approximately 75% of cobalt processing and about 60% of lithium processing. Um, so there are things some interesting strategies from countries that have historically been key producers of minerals. That are now looking to keep more of the value chain within their own borders. You mentioned Indonesia, it's a really good example. It's um, the world's biggest producer of nickel. And as you mentioned back in 2020, it banned exports of nickel ore. Um, we've seen Chile uh, move towards nationalizing its own lithium industry as a means of preventing uh, over-exploitation by foreign uh, investors. Mexico has done the same. So we are seeing a lot of, um, as you mentioned, emerging economies um, try to capitalize on their, on their resources as a means of substantiating their position in the overall supply chain. Yeah, that, uh, you know, for Canadians, this is very poignant because uh, <clears throat> there have been waves of economic development over the last 150 years, uh, you know, particularly I think of the uh, the move from, uh, you know, into uh, the internal combustion engine and petroleum in a big way in the 1920s. And Canada has uh, is, is basically been a hewer of wood and drawer of water you know, for all of that time. And, you know, the there will be a, an innovation and then there's a new demand for some, uh, you know, whether it's oil or gas or or what uranium, whatever it is. And in Canada misses the boat. It never it never captures those supply chain opportunities. And in the response to to the current uh, energy transition, uh, I'll give you an example. I, I sat on a, a panel in Ottawa last fall uh, with uh, the fellow who used the economist who used to run the Canadian Federal, Federal Civil Service, and we were talking about this, and he said, "Nah, you know, we'll muddle through. Don't worry about it. We don't have to really." And I, you know, that kind of blase, you know, it'll it'll all land in our lap anyway. Uh, contrasts so strongly with what the emerging economies are doing, who see the opportunity and are moving very strongly, and to take advantage of this. And in some of these, you know, we're like incumbents. Nah, we'll get there. We don't. We don't see the the, the threat, the existential threat to to uh, to our uh, to our economy. Uh, so let's talk. And speaking of, let's talk about the U.S. because I think this is fascinating. The way the U.S. kind of you know moseyed into the energy transition throughout the the 2010s, and you know, kind of went a little backwards almost in some ways under Trump. And then Biden comes along and kaboom. I mean, it's just like, a, you know, they turned on a dime and suddenly you've got the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. You've got the U.S. In in Infrastructure Act. You've got the Chips and Science Act. And, you know, it's over a trillion dollars uh, to catch up on some of these things. What impact will those that legislation and that funding have on the critical minerals analysis that you have laid out here? It's a good question. So you're right, the recent realization by the US that it's in a relatively weak position, particularly compared to China, 
was a very strong impetus for the creation of the um, US Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I think it's directing almost $400 billion of financial support towards energy transition technologies and, uh, and mineral sourcing. So there's a strong emphasis in the act on reducing dependency on China. For example, offering tax credits only for electric vehicles that have been assembled in North America or contain batteries where the minerals have been sourced from countries with which the US is a free trade agreement. So we're going to see some interesting shifts in um, I suppose, existing supply chains. Uh, American manufacturers are going to have to find uh, new sources of critical minerals if they want to benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, we've seen some uh, some disappointment, but I think or some disappointment um, from both manufacturers and as well from, let's say, the EU, uh, which it fears missing out on these uh, on these trading benefits. Uh, but overall, I think uh, it's, a strong, it's a good, I mean, the US has to make this move. Like you said, Canada has been slow, the US has been slow. And in terms of strategy, it's a, it is a necessary step. And let's talk about the EU because the, the, the US brings in these this legislation uh, and in response to China, and then the EU brings in the Critical Raw Materials Act in response to the US. And and so you have the developed countries now, the, the advanced economies, uh, really getting on board this uh, in a big way. So what can you tell us about the EU response? Yes, so the EU is making similar moves. It's directing about 250 billion euros, which is equivalent to about 270 billion dollars as part of its Green Deal industrial plan. And that comes alongside the EU's Critical Raw Materials Act, which aims to secure its mineral pipeline. Uh, build a strong clean energy industry and improve self-sufficiency, which is a very important objective in today's geopolitical climate. Um, so that's what the EU is again also at a very early stages. It came even after the US's plan. So um, it remains to be seen how it works out. Uh, but we are seeing we are seeing a lot of protectionism by region, by the US, the EU, China, Indonesia, Latin America. Um, but at the end of the day, collaboration is still required. So it's interesting to see. How will this work out in terms of a global supply chain? So we, we've talked about uh, China and a few of the Asia Pacific countries. We've talked about North America and we've talked about Europe. But what about Africa and some of these other emerging economies? How are they going to respond to this increased demand for critical minerals? So Africa is very rich in mineral resources. Uh, Seventy percent of cobalt um, is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and China has been investing heavily in the African continent, and they've been in African countries such as um, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia, Ghana. They've been quite receptive to Chinese investment uh, because it's helping to build infrastructure. It's um, leading to higher employment, and again, and and a stronger position within the supply chain for very important technologies such as batteries and energy transition and, and electronics. Um, so we are seeing them or African countries. Uh, move into a stronger strategic position. Uh, and I think we will see over the years uh, greater involvement in um, in the supply chain. Now, the, the one uh, big player in this that we haven't talked about is Russia. Mm-hmm. And that uh, in some ways becomes a little bit uh, unpredictable uh, because of the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022 and the response uh, from uh, particularly from the West so, but Russia has a substantial market share in nickel and palladium production, as well as rare earth elements. Uh, how's that going to play out, do you think? Good question. I would say that the war has had 
two types of effects. Um, the first has been to limit Russia and Ukraine's development of their own resources. As an example, uh, Russia is some of the world's largest rare earth reserves. And prior to the war, Russia had the intention to become the world's second biggest producer of rare earths after China. However, since the war, uh, attention has been diverted away from this. And it's a similar story in Ukraine. Ukraine is reported to have large lithium reserves, potentially the largest reserves within Europe. And before the war started, there was early stage exploration within Ukraine and plans to potentially start producing lithium. However, especially since the reserves are located close to war zones, the plans were halted. Um, the second type of effect the war has had is on uh, existing mineral markets. For example, Russia is already a key producer of critical minerals such as nickel, as you mentioned, uh, particularly battery grade nickel. And while the war has caused some turbulence in the nickel market, particularly at the onset of the war, the market has calmed down in recent months. And this is partly because at the same time, the nickel market has diversified. So Indonesia is working hard to increase its production of battery grade nickel. Um, Canada too um, is working on the same. So increasingly there will be some more supply options uh, and that's helped to mitigate the potential impact of the war on certain minerals. Maybe we'll wrap up the conversation, uh, Isabel, with a your take on how this plays out geographically. And what I mean by that is you we, we talked about the US Inflation Reduction Act and its provisions for it, well, its preference for and making only making subsidies available for uh minerals and technologies that are produced either domestically or with countries with which it has free trade agreements and it almost looks like we're the the uh we have three blocks here uh china and and some of the other asia pacific countries like japan and korea and south korea then we have uh europe and then we have north america and they're all they're all basically frantically working to create not only the industries, but then all of the downstream supply chains and whatever is required upstream and, and trying to, you know, they're, they're, they're competing. It's geopolitical uh, competition as well. And, but it looks like they're trying to, to get as much as they can within their, their block, their region uh, in, in a short period of time so that they're the most competitive now most competitive um is that a reasonable frame in which to understand this it is true there, there is something of a, a scramble at the moment um trying to each region trying to assert itself in the space in the short term that might work out um but in the long term collaboration is always is almost always required um as technology continues to grow you don't know what you might need in the future and isolating regions isolating themselves from one another it, it might, excessive protectionism might end up um, coming back to bite these regions. Um, you know, not sharing information, not sharing um, the latest technologies, etc. Keeping it all very private and protectionist um, could have adverse consequences. But it's a, it's a strong move, however, to ensure that you have a reliable and steady um, supply of key key minerals and materials that are required for these technologies. So there are positives and advantages and negatives to um, these strategies. And because they're so new and fresh, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. We have seen a lot of success, obviously, um, in China, which has for decades been prioritizing um, both upstream and downstream development. Uh, but we will see, we'll see how this works out when other regions um, try to imitate the same. Well, Isabel, this has uh, been a very interesting conversation uh, of key 
critical uh, issue for the energy transition. So we'll be keeping an eye on it here at Energy Media. So thank you very much for this. Thank you, Markham. Thank you.